world. He sent his only son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And we've said, we all know it, but do we really know it? And so we've been kind of deconstructing that verse and looking at the, the truths inside of that verse as we think about what does this really mean when it says God so loved? What is this love? Today we talk about God's sacrificial love. And sacrifice is an idea we think we have a pretty good grasp on. Uh, maybe we do. Maybe. Uh, my wife, Stephanie, was in uh, Texas a couple weeks ago. We sent her home to do a kind of a homecoming week. She hadn't been to her mom's house in almost two years. And she said, you know what? You just miss your mom's food. You just miss, you just miss being with your mom at your mom's house. And so we said, okay, we'll go. So she goes back to West Texas. And uh, the girls and I, my nine-year-old and five-year-old, uh, we stayed back home together. We're talking about sacrifice today, okay? <laughs> we sacrifice uh, for her benefit, right? She, so she could go and have uh, joy, but we didn't sacrifice big things. Uh, the girls sacrificed having a decent ponytail at, um, at school for the week. They had ponytails, and I purposely didn't do it in front of the mirror because they'd be like, Dad, I think there's bumps, and I don't think this is right. And I'd be like, you look wonderful. Out you go. Um, and they'd fall out by an hour or so because I'm just not very good at ponytails. Uh, sacrifice sleep so we could get the laundry done and she wouldn't come home to a crazy, messy house. We sacrificed little things, uh, but we did it. Um, nutrition and grooming and all the things we lost as we had Taco Bell at night. Um, we did that so that she might have joy. It was a little picture uh, of sacrifice. And so today we're not talking about a little picture of sacrifice. We're talking about God's sacrificial love. And so what we're going to do is we'll see the scope of it, the cost of it, and ultimately the result of it as it applies to our lives. And so again, as we've done before here, we're going to start with Nicodemus because John 3.16 is this famous verse, but it started because Nicodemus asked a question. Nicodemus was a teacher of the law, a Pharisee morally upstanding, and actually humble. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus has no formal education, and Nicodemus, this, this teacher of the law, calls him rabbi, which is a term of great respect. Nicodemus, who would have the moral standing in the relationship, would have the, the societal stature, he puts himself in front of Jesus in the position of a learner, and he basically asks the question, well, what do I need to be saved and Jesus says, you have to be born again. And so Nicodemus is going, what does this mean, be born again? What, is, what does rebirth look like? And what is this salvation? Who is it even for, Jesus? To which Jesus replies in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The answer to, to Nicodemus' question uh, of what is, what is rebirth, how do, I, how do I be reborn, and who is this salvation for, what are you even talking about? The answer to that question is, is John three sixteen and 17, where Jesus basically says, the way you're reborn is that I'm going to be given for the world. Which is a little quizzical for Nicodemus. Because the way we read it, we read it as this kind of universal gift. And D.A. Carson is a great theologian, a guy much smarter than me. He says the world, whenever you see the world in, in the Gospel of John, uh, the world does not refer to uh, the bigness of the world, but the badness of the world. Well, he talks about, uh, John later says, you know, don't be, uh, be in the world, but not of it. What he's talking about is, is you can be in the midst of the wickedness, but don't be wicked like it. And so whenever you see world in the Gospel of John, you can translate it as wickedness. This matters because Nicodemus is uh, a moral guy. Nicodemus probably is a great man in the Jewish faith. And he's being told he needs a new start. 
He's being told he needs a rebirth, that his morality isn't good enough, that his learning isn't good enough, that his teaching isn't good enough, that all of his law-keeping, as, as well as he can try to do it, it's not good enough. To which um, the D.A. Carson quote, is God's love in sending the Lord Jesus is to be admired not because it extended to so big a thing as the world, but to so bad a thing. Not to so many people as to such wicked people. Right, Carson zooms out of John 3.16 and says the, the incredible nature of the gift of Christ to the world is not because of its bigness, but its badness. It's not because of there's so many people, but such wicked people. And this is, this is going to matter. So if you, if Carson would say, you could rewrite John 3.17, for God did not send his son to the wicked to condemn the wicked, but in order that the wicked might be saved through him. And this, in Nicodemus' hearing, had to just be crushing. Nicodemus is saying, what do I, this incredibly moral, upstanding human being, this leader of our great religious society, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, God sent me for the wicked. And he basically looks at Nicodemus and says, that's, that's you, bro. When we think of people who need salvation, when we think of people who need, uh, you know, a refreshing of life and a change of scenery, we think of, of what this rebirth would look like in our culture. We see that typically as someone who's experienced moral collapse. We think of someone who's in an emotional freefall, someone whose life is failing, someone who, who needs moral structure because they just can't get it right. Their behavior is bad, is what we see. Like, like think about it this way. Prison ministry is a thing. Like, it's a formalized thing. Churches have formal prison ministries. Why? It's because the people in prison, they've done bad things to get there. There's nothing wrong with prison ministry, but we don't have corporate campus upstanding professional ministries, do we? There are people who minister in corporate campuses. There are people who minister to professionals. But for the most part, there aren't like formalized, there aren't churches who are taking mission trips over to the local corporate headquarters, walking through the halls and the cubicles. You look broken with your six-figure job and your white collar. You're very broken. Can we pray for you? You know, you'd get thrown out. Why? Because we don't think of those people as needing anything. That's Nicodemus. Nicodemus is upstanding. He's doing stuff right. He's got it all figured out. He's living the right life. And Jesus says, still wicked. This understanding of the world expands our understanding of what's required and what's included when Jesus speaks of the love of God. To be reborn is not about offering greater morality. And Jesus offering his life is not offering greater morality to those who are in crisis or those who are in collapse. It's actually about recognizing that we're all on some level in crisis and we're all on some level in collapse. And in some form or another, we are largely put there by chasing morality. Right? It's not about offering greater morality to people. It's about realizing that chasing greater morality put us in crisis in the first place. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He followed the rules. He observed the law. Jesus says, wicked. Which is to say, it's not about your behavior, because behavior is just a symptom of greater brokenness. Your behavior is not the issue. Your behavior is just the outflowing of something else that's wrong on the inside. Jesus came for everyone, because everyone was in need. Sacrifice, in, in its kind of pure nature, simply means to take a loss for the gain of others. To sacrifice is to take a loss for the gain of others. In baseball, you uh, sacrifice fly, sacrifice bunt. You take the out to advance the runner. 
I take the personal loss, the team gets the victory. In war, we'll talk about soldiers who sacrifice their lives for a greater good, for their country. The individual takes the loss, the whole gets advanced. The word sacrifice comes from uh, two words that basically mean to make holy or make sacred. Sacer, sacred, and fakio is, is to make. It's to make sacred, to make holy. So when we talk about what is it, a sacrifice, a sacrifice is actually to make holy. You do it every day around here. We have uh, 80 people on uh, our Covenant Kids volunteer list. 80 people. Those are 80 people who at some time or another sacrifice their willingness and their ability to come in and sit and enjoy a Sunday at church. To enjoy the worship or the sermon, to sit and just be. You sacrifice that. You give that up. You take a loss there so that we might train up all these kids in Christ-likeness. People give up that hour. You sacrifice it, and you give it away to the larger community. That's sacrifice. We have people who willingly lose money into those black boxes against the wall. People give up. They lose the right to add to their savings. You lose the right to add inches to your next television. You lose the right to do that. And instead, you give money towards the mission of the church, towards seeing this community reach, towards seeing the lost be found. That's sacrifice. Sacrifice is the loss of something of great value for the benefit of the many. All of our examples, though, are for the greater good. When we talk about sacrifice, it's always for the greater good. In sports, it's for the team. In war, it's for the country. For us, it's, it's for the mission. It's, it's always for the greater good. What makes the sacrifice of Jesus so remarkable is that he gave his life for enemies, which speaks to the cost. Romans chapter 5. Verse 6 says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps, perhaps, for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us is that while we, while we were yet sinners, and that's not a behavioral word, that's an identifier. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now received reconciliation. That word reconciliation is an accounting term. It, he made everything right with us. We were in debt. In, in the, the life and death and resurrection of Christ has brought us back into balance. It's not about our behavior. It's about our identity. When we were weak, when we were unrighteous, when we were enemies. In a very real sense, Jesus set aside his divinity to cover our depravity. The king climbed off the throne and became a peasant. Born into filth to know us in our place. What makes Jesus' sacrifice so incredible is that he didn't give his life simply to protect ours. He laid down his identity to radically change ours. Jesus gave his life and his identity as the king, and he set it aside for that moment that we might be radically transformed, not made better, but transformed. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5 is astoundingly beautiful. It says that we're basically broken tents that have been invited into the internal house of God. We're homeless invited into the mansion. Not to have a room in the mansion, but to co-own the mansion. Here's the deed. It's yours. It says in Christ, we're new. We're reborn. To answer Nicodemus' question. We were dead in sin. We're made alive in Christ. That's sacar facio. That's the, that's the make holy. Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice to make us holy, to set us apart, to make us new. That was the sacrifice. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, to make dead people alive. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Take a minute and just reconnect with that truth. Reconnect with the joy of that in our own lives. Jesus didn't come into my life to make me a little bit better or to, to kind of alter my behavior to be a little bit more polite, a little bit more moral. He didn't do that. Jesus came when I was dead in my sin. He came not to make me better, but to make me alive. To give us real life. So the question becomes, what do we do with that real life? What do we do? How do we become like Jesus? How do we live more like Jesus? How do we give our lives more like Jesus? How do we look around us and go, how do I create holiness around me? Because sacrifice, if it's to make others holy, if it's to make other things holy, if it's to make this world holy, if it's to make relationships holy, if it's giving of myself to make others holy, then we have a job to do. How do you make your neighborhood holy? Like that sort of church question, religious question, you can brush it aside. Okay, yeah, how do I make the neighborhood holy? Okay, I get it. We're applying it now, right? I got it. No, how do you make a neighborhood holy? How do you begin to set apart your street? How do you sacrifice so that others on your block might know the love and new life of Christ? How do you make your school holy? I don't see a lot of good news coming out of schools these days. What would it look like to make a school holy? How do you make your workplace holier? How do you make your marriage holy? Give of your spouse, give of yourself to make your spouse holy. What does it mean to take a loss for their gain? Right, this is a universally felt idea. There's something in this sacrificial living that resonates across humanity. I was listening to a podcast recently, and somehow or another, I'm halfway through the podcast, and it comes out that the guest is Justin Bieber's manager. And I, was, I, like, I, I felt shame immediately. I was like, I didn't know this was Justin Bieber's manager. I'm not, oh, okay, well, whatever. I'm, I'm already still listening. Let's keep listening. And he's talking to this guy about um, sort of Justin Bieber's meltdown as a child star who then just lost it. Lost everything, lost his marbles, and just went off the map. Unbeknownst, uh, probably to the host, Justin Bieber got involved in a Hillsong church in New York City. And the pastor there began to mentor him, and, and this weird kind of, you started seeing these little hints of something different happening in his life. And yet his manager, who has no, uh, no fear of swearing, uh, as evidenced by his conversation that I'm listening to, his manager says, you know what, though? He goes, something I've learned in recent days is we, we weren't meant to be the termination point of all this stuff. And like my jaw hits the floor as I hear this guy start, start talking. 
and totally atheist, Justin Bieber's manager says, I actually think we were created to serve. I think we feel most alive when we're giving of ourselves for other people. I think I've learned that. And he doesn't know what to attribute it to. He doesn't know where it came from. He doesn't know that that's rooted in the person of Christ. But just this universal truth that this guy has been confronted with, and when he sees the idea that we were created not for glory to terminate on us, but for us to be vessels of glory for others, that we were created to serve, we were created to give, we were created to be vessels of sacrifice for others. He gets it. And he goes, I don't know much, but I know that. I know that I feel most alive when I'm living for others. I thought, wow. It's possible to follow Jesus and not even know it, maybe. Are you disenchanted with your life right now? Are you in a rut? Are you feeling particularly just kind of despondent about the trajectory of your days? I would challenge you. I don't know it'll work because everybody's got different nuanced circumstances, but I would challenge you to consider what it might look like that instead of reading the next self-help book, instead of trying uh, a new flavor of ice cream at night, whatever other little tiny things we think are going to make us happier, I would challenge you to actually lean into Justin Bieber's manager's advice. What would it look like to give more of life away for the benefit of others? And I would wonder, and I would actually bet, that we'll find happiness there. That in seeking the holiness of others is actually where we find happiness. Which is exactly opposite of seeking happiness for ourselves. We, we don't find any holiness. And so if you're in that rut today, my challenge to you would be, go serve someone. Go find a way to sacrifice for someone else and just see what it might do for your soul. There's a danger here. The danger in the diagnostic for us is we look at what does it mean to live a sacrificial life. There's one way to know for sure that we've slipped back into morality. That we've slipped back into Nicodemus's behavioral morality will get us there idea. That we're earning our way towards heaven somehow. And the danger, the way we're going to slip back into that, here's how you know. If you begin to resent others for requiring your sacrifice. This happens. We resent others for requiring our sacrifice. And that's when we know we're not, we're not loving them sacrificially like Christ. We're loving them from a moral place of trying to one-up something else. Of trying to earn our way into to goodness. My wife was gone for five days. We did not have time to resent her. But I would be lying to you if I didn't say that somewhere within me, as day three bled into day four and day four became day five, there was a little twitch starting to happen. And I could feel that on the horizon, resentment would have been there. We weren't too many days away from me going, I'm glad she's sitting by the pool in Texas and it's 83 degrees. But we're shivering. And this is our fourth time eating Taco Bell in four meals. And we would have had some issues. Like I felt it viscerally. I was happy to see her. I was thrilled she was home. We don't want to do life without her. And yet, man, if she hadn't come home on Friday, maybe Saturday, maybe Sunday, it was coming. Where my sacrifice would no longer have been because I love her and I want her joy. My sacrifice would have been something that I began to resent. Why would you make me do this for you? You ever feel that ugh feeling when you're serving others? People with kids know this feeling. You feel it daily. You don't want to admit it, but you feel it daily. Dad, Dad, I need something. 
I have, uh, we have the Amazon Alexa in our house. It's a little smart speaker thing that you talk to. And, and what happens, this is a little quirk of the whole system. They've created it and they've, they've trapped us and we're stuck forever and the government's listening to us and all that's true. But if you have more than one, um, they actually work, they're basically like an intercom system and you can talk to them. And so my girls um, have the little one in their room and, and they can actually call the kitchen. If I'm in the kitchen, they can call mom and dad's room. And so it, it serves as this sort of like in-house phone system. Only my children have no idea how to use it properly. And after like nine o'clock, it becomes really annoying. It, and so I, I'm sitting down and I think this is last week or two weeks ago, Steph's out of town. And I finally, like end of the day, I finally got them in bed and I sit down and we have uh, a recliner. So I just put the, the legs up just a little bit, not even all the way, because I don't want to feel guilty about actually reclining. There's more to do, there's laundry, there's dishes, all that. So the legs are like a little bit up, just so my feet are off the floor. <sighs> and I take a deep breath, and then I hear the ring from the kitchen. And the thing starts glowing green, which means someone is calling. Here's the thing, though. It, it's far field tech. It can hear me from a long way away, but you can't hear the other person like when you're talking. You have to actually go up to it and talk to it. Anybody over uh, 35 is going, yeah, we used to call that a telephone. You had to actually pick it up and talk to it. I recognized the irony as I was getting frustrated. I was like, oh yeah, this is what we always had to do. Um, and so she, Brixton calls me. She's five years old. She calls me, dad, you didn't get me any fresh water. And I was like, I did get you fresh water. Okay, love you, bye. And she hangs up. I take a deep breath. I go sit back down. I'm back in the chair. You know, I had to put the legs down because that's how you get out of a recliner. So I put the legs back up just a little bit, not even as much, like an inch and a half off the ground. Take a deep breath and the ring glows green again. And there goes the ring and here she comes. This time I try to answer it from the chair. Hello, yes, just pick up, pick up. It picks up. Dad? And I say, yes, what do you need? Dad, I can't hear you. <laughs> I put the chair down, I walk back over, I, I say, you know, I lean real close to it in my like trying to be graceful voice. I say, what do you need? Dad, is it going to be cold tomorrow? You know, I'm twitching. You live in Ohio, it's March, it's cold every day, go, go to bed, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I get back down in this area, I sit back in the chair, I don't even put the legs up, because I'm like, this better not happen, I, I don't even take the deep breath this time, and it rings again, I get up, and I said, Brixton, if you use this one more time, so help me God, right, and it was some other inane question, some nonsense, you know, like, hey, you know, could we have four dogs one day, I'm like, no, what is your problem, and I find this thing in me, this, this, uh, resentment of my child, for being cute and curious and using the technology that I put into her room. <laughs> but I feel it. You ever feel that ug when you're serving someone else? That sort of um, unwillingness to do it. You're doing it, but you don't want to do it. You're doing an obligation. You're doing it, and you're resenting it as you do it. Serve your kids, serve your spouse, serve your church, whatever. clue here is that if you are existing for your happiness over the holiness of others, you will feel like this a lot. Resentment in serving is our diagnostic clue that we are not living the Christ life, that we are living out of some other well in us. So instead, what does it look like to sacrifice like Jesus? Luke chapter 15. Verse 4 says, what man of you, Jesus says, having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country. When you read open country, that means in a dangerous place. Go after the one that is lost until he finds it. 
And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In this passage, Jesus is answering the Pharisees' questions, his, their accusations about his dealings with uh, sinners, mixing with unclean people, mis- mixing with the wicked of society. And they're asking him, how dare you do that? How do you justify that, Jesus? And his response is, who among us doesn't want to go and seek that one that's lost? There's echoes of, for God so loved the wicked. For God so loved the wicked that he sent his only son. For I so love the wicked that I'll leave the righteous to go and chase the one who's lost. The Amplified Bible in verse 7 when it says, There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That word sinner is translated as especially wicked person. There's more joy in heaven over one especially wicked person. Verse 5 says, When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Verse 6, when he calls his neighbors over, he tells them rejoice. In verse 7, there's joy in heaven. You see it over and over and over again. The result of being found is joy, it's joy, it's joy. Jesus exists in perfection in heaven with the Father in complete peace and complete security, and yet he enters into our open country. He gives up his seat on the throne and takes on his place on the cross. He enters into great danger, even to death, to pick us up on his shoulders and carry us home out of obligation or with resentment. No, with joy. Christians too often read Luke 15 and we fail to see who we are in that story. We're the sheep. Each and every one of us has been the sheep at some point in our life when we're so far off and we didn't know how to get back and we're out and lost and broken and alone. And for each and every one of us, the reality and the truth is that Jesus saw fit get off the throne and get on the cross so that we might be found again. Jesus became insecure so we might know security. Jesus dove into danger that we might know safety. Jesus gave himself to death that we might know life. In rejoicing, he carries us home. Christ-like sacrifice leads to rejoicing, not resentment. Christ-like sacrifice leads to rejoicing, not resentment. And so as a church, we have two opportunities today. The first is we can rediscover the joy of our salvation. We were lost and we are now found in Christ. Second thing we can do is begin to pray earnestly for more Christ-like hearts, that we might be a people who seek out the hurting and the broken in our community, in our homes. And with these more Christ-like hearts, we might live more Christ-like lives. We might begin to give our lives as a sacrifice to others. And we would do so not with resentment that we're obligated to help others, but with rejoicing knowing that we are modeling the beautiful love of God. God so loved the world that he gave 
may we so love those around us that we would be inspired to live with the sacrificial ferocity of our Savior and our King Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you humble us with the way that you love us. You humble us when you hold the mirror up and we're forced to look and realize that no matter how hard we try and no matter how moral we can become, that we're lost without you. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for your sacrificial love for us. And thank you for never giving up on us for seeing our need before we knew we had it, and for following through before we knew what to do with it. Father, your love for us is overwhelming, and it is astounding, and it is beautiful. God, I pray that you would inspire us as a community to be so deep in that love be so aware of your presence in our lives and your salvation for our souls to be so awash in the ocean of your goodness and your grace, God, that we would have nothing about our days that isn't a reflection of it. That we would live out of that overflow and that this community would be radically transformed by lives of willing and beautiful sacrifice. So Father, open our eyes to the hurting around us. Open our eyes to the brokenness in our midst. Open our eyes to our own places where we need to repent instead of resent. Where we need to seek you and return to you. And then, Father, take you to those who need you still. God, thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.